mistakes and bad luck in history. I'm your host, Carrie Clement, and I am coming to you from the homelands of the Crow, Blackfeet, Cheyenne, Lakota, Dakota, Salish, Kootenai, and Shoshone Bannock Indigenous Nations. Today, I am joined by Dr. Alex Langer, a lecturer at CU Boulder, who studies the history of U.S. foreign relations. Today, we're going to talk about Lord James Brudenell, the Earl of Cardin again. Did I pronounce his last name correctly? Brudenell, yes. Okay. So first things first, what are we drinking today? Well, Carrie, today we are drinking a good old-fashioned gin and tonic with London dry gin and, well, Canada dry tonic because I'm cheap. So why exactly are we drinking that in relation to talking about the Lord of, or the, excuse me, the Earl of Cardigan? Well, I I don't know about you, but I I associate the gin and tonic with a particular uh, Englishness. And this man, if anything, was the most quintessentially English man of the Victorian era, a man who, uh, by both his long political and military careers of sort of upward failings, became almost a stand-in for the extravagant and arrogant aristocrat of an era of real political uh, upheaval in the British Empire. And so I thought, a toast to the Earl of Cardigan here, the gin and tonic. Uh, May you continue to buy commissions you have no right having and get your men killed through your stupidity. (laughs) Cheers. All right. So before we get started, let's take a quick break. Why don't you set the stage for us in terms of geography, the time period, major players to talk about this particular screw up in history? Of course. So today we're uh, talking about Lieutenant General James Thomas Brudenell, seventh Earl of Cardigan, member of the most noble order of the Bath, uh, who was born in 1797 and died in 1868 in England, in the United Kingdom, a politician just in the House of Commons, despite being a lord, a uh, military man who who spent time in England and in India, and then most famously, the commander of the Light Brigade at the Battle of Balaclava in the Crimean War. If you've heard of the poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, this is the guy who led his men straight up a valley uh, surrounded on three sides by Russian guns, um, leading his men into a massacre and witnessing their deft hand, to quote a different uh, military man known for massacres oh you know his title like sort of would fool one into believing that he might actually be competent but that would not be true (laughs) that's the fun thing about the british empire is that you purchased your commission you you bought your way up the officer class and he did it actually uh, incredibly fast he became a lieutenant in january of 1825 so when he was uh 20 28 years old he was a captain a year and a half later a major within four years, and a lieutenant colonel three months after a major by buying his way up the ranks. And he obtained one of his first commands with the equivalent of about 3.3 million pounds um, by 1832, by buying his way up the ranks. His family must have had some money then, obviously. Yes, he was uh, was born in the Brudenell family, the, the Earl of Cardigan, in Hambledon, Buckinghamshire, 
uh, in that his father became the Earl of Cardigan in 1811 with the estates and revenues of that, and he became Lord Brudenell at that point and eventually became the Earl of Cardigan with all the sort of rights and traditional rents that mm-hmm. came with being a lord in Victorian or soon to be Victorian England. So why don't you uh, start us off with the first notorious uh, incident in his life? Yeah, so I think one of my favorite ones, he went to Oxford, which you know kind of is, is fairly normal, but he became a member of parliament, an MP in the House of Commons in what's it's called a pocket bur- uh, borough, basically a borough of England, uh, an area of election that had a very, very small constituency that basically allowed lords or the sons of lords to gain entrance to the House of Commons without almost anyone voting for them. And so it was almost like an internship in which he had the power of a member of parliament. And he you know, was elected and then immediately took off on his grand tour for both France and Italy, with tradition for the Brits at the time, but also Russia and Sweden, and finally showed up in um, the House of Commons, at which point he went against his cousin, who had uh, allowed him to, to join that pocket bureau's wishes, and abstained on the uh, the law uh, allowing for Catholic emancipation, and then was thrown out of his seat by, at the age of 33. So he went off on this grand tour or whatever, which I yes. think was a thing in Bridgerton, so... Yes, it was a thing in Bridgerton <laughs> and in real history too. So he went off on his grand tour and then he came back and he like challenged his cousin's seat and then he like screwed up so much that he got kicked out. Well, so his cousin Charles, the Earl of Aylesbury or Aylesbury owned that pocket bureau. Basically that that area, that, that seat of parliament was pretty much mm-hmm. controlled on the estates of his cousin. So, you know, roughly some left, you know, a couple hundred people at most needed to vote for him and all of them worked for his cousin. So his cousin basically gave uh, him a seat, like a graduation gift into uh-huh. the House of Commons because whenever he became would become the Earl of Cardigan, he would get a, an automatic seat in the House of Lords. So as a younger man, they went, well, just, you know, hang out in the House of Commons, learn how to do things, before you take your rightful place as a, as a peer. He then, because he admired Wellington, uh, Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington, he went against his cousin. His cousin then threw him out of the seat that his cousin had bought for him. Oh, okay, okay. Then, then <laughs> in 1830, he knew he couldn't get a pocket bureau, so he bought his own pocket bureau for about 500,000 pounds to become the, an elected uh, member of FAWI in Cornwall. And two years later, the Reform Act of 1832 did away with pocket uh, boroughs and the practice of buying your way into the House of Commons. So... He got a free seat in the House of Commons, got kicked out of it for not opposing uh, Catholic emancipation, and then bought his way back into the House of Commons only to lose that seat two years later. Wow. Yeah, what does he do next? Well, he decides to actually campaign in a real uh, in a real uh, district in the House of Commons in Northamptonshire North, which is right around his family's ancestral seat of Dean Park. Despite the fact that most of the people who could vote for him were like clients of his family, dependent on his family's patronage and goodwill, he was actually beaten up and, quote, considerably injured while campaigning. <laughs> In Wellingsborough. <laughs> okay. And then he spent another, the equivalent of about two million pounds in open bribes among his electorate and barely won that seat as the junior member to his rival in the Whigs because he was a Tory. He spent the rough equivalent of, yeah, roughly 2.5 million pounds to be the junior 
member of parliament for a seat basically around his family home where the people who elected him were all clients of his family, and yet they beat him up during the election. So, you know, well-liked guy. Oh, and tremendously well-liked. <laughs> so what happens after he's beaten up while trying to buy his way into parliament? Well, he forked out right around this time, actually right around the time his, his uh, first purchased parliament seat was taken away from him. He spent that equivalent $3.3 million to become a uh, lieutenant colonel of the 15th King's Hussars, Hussars, I believe, 15th the King's Hussars. And he was, and he was immediately uh, criticized by the officers who he led. He was publicly censured in 1833 for reprehensible conduct in a court-martial that he, uh, in terms of uh, charges he'd laid against a subordinate. He was dismissed from his command by King William um, in 1834 and had to force basically his sister, who was a chamberlain of the queen, to get the decision reversed. It took him about four years to get command of a different squadron, the 11th Light Dragoons, which were in India. And so he got command of this, this, new, uh, this new unit in March of 1836. It took him a year and a half to get to India with his wife. Uh, so he, he didn't get to India until October of 1837. Um, he spent a couple weeks um, tiger hunting, and then his regiment returned to Britain at the end of its posting. He traveled separately. Uh, of the two years he was appointed the commander of the 11th Dragoons, he spent four weeks with his entire regiment. But he became the Earl of Cardigan during that time. Why did he keep trying to buy his way? Why Why did he keep trying? Why not just sort of like go back to the homestead, if you will, and shoot pheasant every day and live cush life as a British noble? Yeah. So according to some of the you know, the biographies of him, he was both a really good rider. He was, he was very good on horseback. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, he had grown up with a massive appreciation of the role of the cavalry at the Battle, at the battle of Waterloo. So he was basically a fanboy. He had, he had seen, um, <laughs> he, had, he had seen the, the, the importance of cavalry regiments at Waterloo and said, I want to be that guy. I want to serve under or with or alongside Wellington. I want to be a cavalry officer. And he spent most of his life, it seems, trying to become one. But not wanting to, for instance, travel with his men because that would be upsetting or, you know, spend any time with them when they were stationed in India or do anything other than buy his men cardigan coats and fancy new <laughs> uniform, which they did appreciate, to be fair. He spent uh, basically 900,000 pounds a year towards his troops' uniforms. I mean, he just, you know, he wanted them to uh, to look awesome, but he didn't <laughs> particularly uh, care about really anything else. So 1830s, he is spent a couple of months shooting tigers in India, and then he's on his way back to England, separate from his men. What happens then? Well, he retains uh, a posting, and in 1841, he gets in a duel with one of his former officers, a man named Captain Tuckett. He he had disparaged him. They uh, you know met for the duel. Cardigan had a sophisticated dueling pistol with rifling and a hair trigger, which um, oh. I'm obviously not an, an expert on dueling, but the, the point of the duel is to show your willingness to take a shot, not to actually hit the other guy. And so that's why you use inaccurate pistols and things like that. Mm. But he had guns that were accurate and quick firing against Captain Harvey Tuckett. He, as a member of the House of Lords, he had the right to acquire 
his trial to be that by his peers. So the jury was 120 members of the House of Lords who unanimously voted to acquit him of having shot his former captain, despite having been arrested by saying, quote, I have hit my man. Oh, my God. Uh, Did he kill him or did he just wound him? He just wounded him. Okay. I was just wondering if that conversation came up in his trial in that, you know, he is a good shot, supposedly, and he has a super accurate pistol. So therefore, he must have purposefully wounded him instead of actually trying to kill him. So we're going to acquit him because if we don't, then we'll be guilty and blah, blah, blah. No, the acquittal is even dumber than that. Oh, my God. <laughs> the acquittal is that the the indictment had laid out uh, that his victim had been Harvey Garnett Phipps Tuckett. But the wording of the charge had done Captain Tuckett, even though his full name was Harvey Garnett Phipps Tuckett, because he had claimed to have shot Captain Harvey Tuckett as opposed to Harvey Garnett Phipps Tuckett. The jury of his peers decided that the indictment was um, was not brought well and it unanimously voted to acquit him. In response, both the Times of London alleged that there was a, quote, deliberate high-level complicity to leave a loophole in the prosecution case and reported their view that, quote, in England, there's one law for the rich, another for the poor. And even his obituary described his evasion of justice as a, quote, absurd technical deficiency. Yeah, like usually obituaries try to be kind, but like, hey, he shot a man, said, I shot a man. And the indictment said, you shot a man. And your jury of your peers said, well, he may have thought he shot a different man. Okay, keep 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 on keeping on. Keep calm and carry on, my friend. Okay, so in other words, we have this rich white English nobleman, nobleman running mm-hmm. around the English countryside in the House of Parliament uh, with a accurate dueling pistol with a hair trigger, yes. which, and having attempted and lost many times to buy his way into either the military and or the parliament, quitted by a jury of his peers, then what? 13 years later, he is in charge of the Light Cavalry Brigade at the Battle of Balaclava in the Crimean War on, on 25th October, 1854. The charge of the Light Brigade, um, as Tennyson, who, who wrote about it, was a maneuver, a charge that cost the lives of about 100 of the 675 men that he was with, which is a shockingly high rate of actual casualties, uh, despite what you know movies will show. But about one out of every six men that made the charge of the Light Brigade died there. And he, uh, yeah, and he lived with that forever, or at least he cited ill health and, and ran back to, uh, to England only after a superior officer confirmed that he indeed had ill health. His most famous, I guess, loser moment is the Charge of the Light Brigade, which is a series of miscommunications by a bunch of men that may have also had to do with some marital issues between the his commanding officer and the like. And Cardigan either charged bravely and survived or left the field of battle halfway through and returned to his yacht to... Uh, um, have dinner, depending on which source you ask. So which source is like, oh, he was this brave guy. And which source was like, nah, man, he went back and ate his dinner on his expensive yacht. Like For the Charge of the Light Brigade, you have a scenario in which, in this in this valley, in the Battle of Balaclava, the Russian army had overrun some, some gun emplacements. And the overall commander, yeah, Lucan, Field Marshal George Charles Bingham, 3rd Earl of Lucan, 
know, these, these people who happened to be um, married to one of Cardigan's sisters and was treating her poorly. And so was not on speaking terms with his subordinate instructed another man, Captain Lewis Nolan, who didn't like any of them to go get those guns. He said basically to, to charge up one side of this Valley to secure the English guns before the Russians took them away. Lewis Nolan went up to Cardigan and said, basically, go get those guns. And Cardigan went, the only guns I see are those Russian guns at the end of the valley, surrounded on three sides by other Russian guns. And he said, go get those guns. And Cardigan lined up his men and charged down the valley uh, with his 675, 674 men with a hailstorm of fire on all three sides. Mm. One guy, Somerset John Gow Calthorpe, seventh baron of Calthorpe, Man, these names are just killing me. <laughs> They're ridiculous. Uh, I, I will say this as much. You know, being an American, um, you know, there's a lot of problems, but at least we don't have names like this. You know, it's just, you know, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. There's no seventh <laughs> Earl of, you know, that one yeah. place in Massachusetts that matters or whatever. So in one letter from a staff officer, Cardigan, who did survive, he argued that he had basically fled the scene before they made contact. And he also pointed out that Cardigan was too good of a horseman to have allowed his horse to mm. bolt so it clearly had been him leaving now he yeah. tried he sued this guy for criminal libel uh in 1863 though his actions failed mainly because they criticized his competence but not his courage um they said he had led his men onto the enemy guns with valor cons- conspicuously displayed but his conduct as a general was open to criticism basically he he either galloped too far ahead of his men to be an effective commander of his men as they were being shot on all sides with massive grape shot and you know, Russian artillery firing point blank grape shot at men on horses. But at the very least, an, an enemy officer who he knew, a, a Russian officer, uh, who I'm not going to pronounce his name because it's, I think, <laughs> Russian, but not Russian that I'm familiar with, he recognized that he recognized that Cardigan had made his way to the guns, but then Cardigan turned around and rode back, uh, which he claimed, claimed that he walked his horse back, but his own Lord Lucan, who was again, married to his sister in an unhappy marriage, gave evidence that he galloped back. Other people uh, noted that as one Russian commander said, uh, I want to identify the English officer who was galloping away after the attack. Men of the second and third line saw him, basically riding in retreat as they were going forward. People noted that he could have issued the orders to, you know, break off the engagement before so many of them had died, but he just kept riding back. And there's this sort of, you know, inconclusiveness, counterclaims, allegations, uh, books, and and all sorts of things. But but yeah, this man, uh, Cardigan, who spent for sure most of the nights of his campaign aboard the luxury yacht Dryad, felt inconvenient that his men kept getting posted farther inland because he would have to keep traveling further to command them each day. (laughs) But yeah, at the end in December of 1854, he cited ill health and returned to England. And normally if an officer says ill health, everyone's like, cool, that's your like, I'm resigning with my honor intact. Yeah. His commanding officer forced a medical board to confirm (laughs) that he was in fact in ill health. So this commission that he bought, uh-huh. he tried to resign willingly from it after a disaster in which he probably 
based on the fact that he was at the very least an accomplished horseman to some degree was seen riding swiftly away from a disaster that he probably, and I'm trying to be somewhat judicious in my language here, probably contributed greatly to. And he tried to resign and his commanding officer was like, no, 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 no. We need to have a medic. We need to have somebody else verify this. I mean, I, I guess on some level, I'm sort of like wondering why the commanding officer was just like, nah, man, yeah, go for it. Here, bye bye. Well, don't please let the door hit you on your way out. Like, I guess I'm just wondering why he forced that. I think, and you know, I am not, and you know, fair. I am not a an expert in Victorian culture. Um, you know, for fair warning, I learned of Lord Cardigan because I played through Assassin's Creed Syndicate, which is set in Victorian London, um, and I'd never heard of him, <laughs> or at least uh, heard of his particular role. And after my character assassinated him in the game, so a non-canon scenario, I then looked him up. But I'm guessing this was a a very open attempt to say, like, not just, oh, ill health, but you have this thing, and thus we get to publicize the fact that you have, you know, a disability to kind of uh, to hurt his honor, is my guess, is the guy was like, I want, I want it written down what you're claiming. The funny thing is. He he came back to basically not funny thing because there's not already a ton of funny things. Funny things. He came back to London with rapturous applause. What? Yeah, Queen Victoria invited him herself to learn of his gallant actions in charging oh, into boy. the face of certain doom to defend the rights of the British Empire. He was presented to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert at Windsor Castle. He gave an exaggerated account of his performance. He. Uh, he spoke about how he had shared the uh, the troubles of his men by living, quote, the whole time in a common tent, and how he had rallied his troops and uh, pursued the fleeing enemy uh, uh, men for a long time after the charge of the Light Brigade. And so for several months, he was praised throughout Britain for being this honorable man. And he almost got the Order of the Garter, which is one of the highest, you know, you know, um, knightly orders or ranks you can get in the British Empire. And it's only because of things like his duel with his former uh, captain that the Queen Queen Victoria did not give him the Order of the Garter. And then, and then, um, <laughs> his own brother-in-law, who resigned in disgrace because of uh, the Charge of the Light Brigade, showed up and started telling the story about what happened. And it didn't. It wasn't until 1855 the Times, uh, the Times of London, talked about how the public had been misled over the quote real nature of Cardigan's services in the East. And then officers who had taken command in the aftermath started showing up and started writing books. And yeah, it was a it was a long uh, kind of 13 years of slow reveals of what had actually happened during the Charge of the Light. So was he good at marketing himself to use like sort of millennial terms? The funny thing is, no, like he, he was a open, I mean, the dude got beat up on the campaign trail by like the people who (laughs) owed him money. He, he had the benefit of getting to London first and, you know, people love a good doomed charge, right? The gallant men charging into battle on the orders of a, of a, of a damned superior officer. And he had the benefit of, for sure having charge, unlike his brother-in-law, who just gave the order. And so I think it just was a scenario where he showed up, 
people were kind of enraptured by these, you know, brave soldiers of the British Empire charging into near doom, which is the reason that we're sitting here in 2021 caring about the charge of the Light Brigade, a small, you know, charge by a bunch of dragoons in the Crimean War, a war that if you asked, you know, 10 people on the street, what was the Crimean War? Hopefully one person would be able to say it was a war in Crimea, but like, that's all you need to know about it. You know, like, it's not, it's not a big one. I think he just, he showed up, he gave his account, and then everyone else who came back and was like, oh no, he actually screwed up, was accused of trying to salvage their own reputation by tearing down the gallant charge of this officer cardigan. Well, and I, I guess I'm in, in just thinking about the geography on some level of the Crimean War, I guess I'm struck by the fact that less than 100 years later, Winston Churchill's, like this is completely random, but like Winston Churchill's military career is almost, or his entire political career is almost derailed by a poor military decision in the same region. But that's not, you know, that's not necessarily, that's not related to Lord Cardigan. It's more just thinking about the British Empire uh, fighting these wars. Okay, so he's he's back in Britain. His brother-in-law shows up and is like, I don't know what the hell he told you, but this is what actually happened. What happens next? It Basically, you have a series of soldiers and officers who actually took command after he, you know, fled the field of battle. It sort of, you know, kind of created doubts, but he spent the next, really the next like five to, to 10 years creating new dress uniforms and working on like parade uniforms. He, I mean, he was, uh, he, he was still in Royal favor in 1861. He got to, he accompanied the Prince of Wales abroad. He was still at least a little bit loved through his, his retirement in 1866, but he spent most of his time looking at, uh, you know, like dress uniforms and parade dress for various dragoons and hussars throughout Britain before he retired in 1866 and and lived happily for a couple years before uh, he fell off his horse and died. It's possible that he suffered a stroke and fell off his horse is one one speculation, but yeah, he he fell Ah. off his horse in March of 1868 and died of injuries caused by that. Ah. And how old is he when he, when he dies? About 70 years old when he dies. Okay. Well, I guess one one thing I've forgotten to sort of like frame in this story is like, what's going on with his personal life? Is he married? Is he not married? Does he leave behind not perhaps not so sad children? Like by by all accounts, um, by all accounts, uh, he married twice. He married um, Mrs. Elizabeth Tolmox Johnston, who was uh, who was already married to Lieutenant Colonel Christian Johnson, who had been a friend of Cardigan's. He then wooed his wife. Oh. <laughs> he, he challenged uh, one of her cousins to a duel. And then um, after Johnson divorced his wife, uh, Brunel, uh, Brunel married. And that was not a happy uh, marriage for about 10 years. But after Shocked. she died. Shocked. Yeah, <laughs> shocked. So uh, basically they married in 1826. They separated by 1837. And then she died in 1858. But then he married again, Adeline d'Orsay, and he had been conducting an affair with her as his wife was dying. But they they seem to have a very happy marriage for the last eight years of his life. They kind of hung out in the countryside because they were kind of uh, not welcome in high society because of the whole, you know, he's 70 and she's not. And uh, he had been cheating on his wife with her. And 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. She she and his mistress uh, Maria uh, were on good terms until his death. All right. Uh his personal life sounds about these, these Victorians are just they're they're just doing their thing, you know. That's the thing that when you start digging into these folks who supposedly had these really uptight, morally high ground lives, one finds that in fact they did not. Almost like a more accurate depiction of Pride and Prejudice would involve a lot more sex. So Bridgerton is what you're saying. Bridgerton. Okay, so he dies falling off his horse. Where does he fit just in sort of Pulling back a little bit and thinking about the like greater bird's eye view of this screw up in history, where does he fit in the story of the British Empire? Or what does he represent? Does he represent anything? Or is he just this old white man who screwed up royally? And then some other old white man wrote a poem about it and he sort of became famous. I think, I mean, the the honest answer is probably the second one. But I think he's actually really interesting. He hits almost every single note of that particularly British aristocrat who grows up and decides to use his money to buy influence and to buy command. As a military historian, you, you see this over and over and over again, these incompetent officers who bought their way into command who are gonna get the the grunts killed, whether or not it's a lord in a medieval army, whether or not it's a consul who bought his way to election in the in the ancient Roman military, leading his legions into the Teutonberg Forest, whether or not it's a guy who, because he had a college degree, became an officer in the Vietnam War, leading his men into a Viet Cong ambush and getting fragged by the guys who couldn't get their way into the officer corps, whether or not it's that, he is so clearly that. And he spent probably the equivalent of four to five million pounds buying his way to a position to lead his men into the most famous massacre in Western history. And that's four to five million pounds in... In current, in current uh, money. Okay. Uh, the equivalent okay. of four to, uh, four, four to five million pounds in 2019 pounds. That's, that's a massive amount. He's, but he's also a guy who... You know, who was an epitome of the ways in which the British electoral system wasn't working, right? This guy who, whose, un- whose uncle or cousin oh. basically bought him a seat in the House of Commons, a seat in the lower house of British Parliament as a way of learning how to be a congressman. Like this is the equivalent of the equivalent of someone buying. Or, sorry, let's 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 go with our our our, our uh, departed uh, former President Trump. It's the equivalent of like Trump buying Don Jr. or sorry, buying buying Baron Trump a Mar-a-Lago focused seat in Congress just to learn before he takes his spot as a senator from Florida. Because Lord Cardigan uh, Cardigan had a spot in the House of Lords as an earl. And then he got that taken away by the first of the two Mm. major reform bills in the British Empire. And then in the last year of his life, actually spoke in favor of the Reform Bill of 1867, which was all about extending the vote to most members, most male members of British society. So a man who had watched two different seats of his disappear and then gotten beaten up while trying to gain a seat after the Reform Bill of 1832, whose aristocrat, who had used his aristocratic rights to get acquitted from a, a duel, which he certainly was guilty of, in the last year of his life, decided to back the Reform Bill of 1867, one of the most important bills in extending suffrage in the United Kingdom 
to every class of society and blunting a lot of the revolutionary forces in Victorian um, England. So it's kind of a weird and out of out of nowhere coda to a basically Lord Fail's son. So is there any speculation why? He just said I'd, he's worked his entire life to stem the tide of reform and that it was that it wasn't going to work and hope I think generally speaking you you would argue he's probably saying if we extend this reform now we avoid revolt later which as a historian of of politics that tends to be the answer whenever the rich and powerful give up any power it's cuz they see they see the guillotines coming and go if we give up some power now maybe <laughs> we'll we'll survive the revolt to come whether it's you know in the new deal or Victorian London, or, you know, now, right. you know, in around the world, there's that sense of, mm-hmm. if you, you know, if reform yeah. is impossible, revolution is ine- inevitable, maybe in the last years of his life. Uh, yeah, maybe he, he realized that. So in other words, what I'm hearing you say, in many ways, he sort of represented this, I don't want to say last dying breath, but in many ways, he was this last full iteration of what it meant to be able to buy as a as a landed titled lord in England in the British Empire, what it meant to buy influence totally and fully. And then he sort of at the end of it was like, well, you know, I've really messed up my entire life. What have I got to lose? I, I think that's right. I don't know for sure when, for instance, the last prime minister who was a sitting member of the House of Lords was. But what he what you really saw, I think, over the course of the 19th century was in Britain, the slow diminishing of the importance and the legitimacy of the House of Lords as a political unit, as I'm, I'm sure, maybe not sure, but um, as anyone who's listening knows, now the House of Lords is primarily a joke. Like they get a stipend to show up, but they're mainly known for wearing ridiculous outfits and getting in scandals. And they have no <laughs> real, they have no real power. The House of Commons passes laws in the House of Lords kind of rubber stamps them um, in a way that is not historically true. The House of Lords was a legitimate house that could that would have to vote for things for them to pass. And now it's just much like, and, and no offense to the Queen, you know, but much like the British royal family, it's more of a so like an appendix on the British political system than anything else. Right. And I think in a weird way, the Earl of Cardigan showed the ways in which Everything that he did, buying a seat in the house, using the privileges of the aristocracy to his favor, getting his men killed because he wanted to cosplay as the Duke of Wellington's uh, uh, cavalrymen, shows just why the British people slowly shoved more and more the power away from both the crown and the House of Lords and into the actual House of Commons, which was becoming more and more representative of the British body politic. I know we're, we're getting towards the end here, but I do want to return to one quick question I have for you. How does the Crimean War itself fit into this? So how did the Crimean War go for uh, the British Empire? And how did it become such a uh, cultural object within British lore, within British memory, Etc. The Crimean War kind of uh, allegedly started because of the rights of various um, Christian minorities within the Holy Land, which is at that time the part of the, the Ottoman Empire, um, in which the, the Russians were promoting the rights of the Eastern Orthodox Church, the French, the rights of the Roman Catholics, 
in general, you're looking at the Ottoman Empire, which by the 1850s was beginning to turn into um, what was eventually called the diseased old man of Europe, this really, really weak empire that existed athwart um, uh, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. And British British unwillingness to allow the Russian Empire to expand into Crimea and outside of, of, of Ukraine and into the Balkans. And it's one of these wars where the British did win. The British did undermine Russian influence in Europe and in many ways uh, serves as a catalyst for um, Russian social reform and 60 years later, the Russian Revolution. But I think in general, it's one of these... I wouldn't say the last, but one of the the kind of the one of the first wars to be documented, both in written reports and photographs. It creates a lot of. Um, it's a really badly managed war. It's pretty famous for just how incompetent everyone was during the war, and so you see reformers in Britain calling for professionalism. People like Florence Nightingale, who are calling for we can't have this system of basically. Oxford schoolboys with fancy titles sending men to their deaths for no reason because, you know, there are naval shells and railroads and telegraphs and breech loading cannons that, you know, it's in a similar way, I would say, to the ways in which the U.S. Civil War caused a lot of Americans to realize just how different warfare was going to be. The Crimean War did a lot of that, not to the same extent that World War I did, but it forced a lot of people to recognize the costs of this sort of British adventurism, which um, was, you know, not in its last legs by any means. The British Empire has a long and no, um, checkered no, no. history, but the 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 rest of the sort of the 19th century for the British Empire was fairly well. It was, it was fairly peaceful for the British, not so much for you know the right. Indians or uh, the people of Iraq or anywhere else where the British Empire was you know, engaging in act of colonialism. Pick, pick yeah. a country, <laughs> a region in which the British flag flew and you can find an atrocity under every rock. Exactly. And I, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting to sort of frame those atrocities and frame to some degree. I mean, there is a certain, well, to some degree, it's interesting to frame sort of this earlier incompetence, at least on the part of one nobleman who becomes immortalized within one poem, but then to have the sort of might of the British empire and the atrocities associated with that might be expressed several decades later is just a really interesting contrast in my mind. I just love the way you described him as like this cosplay fanboy. <laughs> it feels the way that when I, grew, when I was in sixth grade, people asked me, what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be an F-14 Tomcat pilot because I had seen wow. Top Gun and oh. also, I had read Tom Clancy novels. Mm. The difference was I got too too tall to be a, a, a pilot. I have bad eyesight, and um, I didn't want to go in the Navy. But like, if there had been a route for me to buy the command of a carrier air group at the age of 35, despite not really knowing how to fly an F-14 Tomcat, would I have done it? And you know, when I was you know in my early 20s, would I have thought about it? Probably. The difference is. Our, our Earl of Cardigan, he could do that. He he, he was a good he was a good uh, rider, and he could just buy a company of cavalry and dress them up in really nice cardigan jackets and play pretend until 
he led them into that valley, the Battle of Balaclava, and the Russian guns. Until lots of people died. Grape shot from a from a Russian long gun at forty feet does does some things to a human body and a horse body to be to be frank too. Let's not forget that right. like six hundred of these men were on horses and far more than the hundred men who died um, had horses shot out from under them. Let's not forget that these horses were also sent into hell because right. a guy who was not on speaking terms with his brother-in-law because his brother-in-law thought he was treating it, uh, his wife badly gave orders to a man who respected neither of them, who gave those orders brusquely and fairly insubordinately. And so no man was willing to ask the second question of, do you mean those guns which are achievable or those guns which are a death trap? And then they all sent their men off to death. Good Lord. I mean, on some degree, this is just so infuriating. But on the other degree, (laughs) it sort of like speaks to some level the how contingency in history works. Like Mm -hmm. it is so malleable had it been anyone else given the orders had he decided that day to pretend to be more respectful had cardigan got past his his sort of uh anger and asked a follow-up question the charge of the light brigade may never have happened or maybe if he had been less of a horseman and that his horse freaked out and threw him he would have had an excuse to go back to his yacht interesting so uh i think we're getting close to wrapping up. Are there any takeaways that you want to leave us with? I mean, I think it, it, he's he's interesting because he's you know, I mean, kind of ridiculous. Go 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 look at his just his his portrait on Wikipedia, and it's fantastic in terms of you know <laughs> a moment of of like what what he looks like. But I think it is really the more I think about Cardigan, which I was very much more focused on his you know incompetence fleeing the scene of battle having a, a, a dinner on his yacht you know getting involved would. in a duel but it is very it tracing him through from his time in the 1790s through the the regency he traverses this really interesting era in british history in which there's a lot of social upheaval directed very specifically at people like him people who by an accident of birth and norman conquest and Viking conquest, randomness, had the opportunity to buy his way into leadership and then get a lot of people killed and kind of walk away for the most part scot-free until almost, you know, not after his death, but for a long time. And who got to purchase his way into the House of Commons and make decisions despite you really having nothing other than he happened to be born to a guy who was born to a guy who was born to a guy who, you know, may or may not have come over with William the Conqueror, or may or may not have been involved with, you know, Newt or Knut of, of, you know, just all these sort of moments where human beings have decided that this person's name means more than another because of, you know, random reasons. So I think he's really interesting to follow him from birth to, you know, death in the Victorian era, the height of the Victorian era to see the ways in which he embodied all the social movements and reform movements that animated the Victorian era that we still care about. That's why we listen to stories about, you know, Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper and Florence Nightingale and Karl Marx and all those old people. And those yeah. are just the, the NPCs of Assassin's Creed Syndicate, if you want to play that game. <laughs> um, set in the year of Lord Cardigan's death, or, or the Earl of Cardigan's death in 1868. 
Right. And or even Charles Darwin or mm-hmm. you know, well, and just in thinking about the effect of the professionalization of nursing just on mm-hmm. the American Civil War to say yep. nothing else. Like, yeah, it's a really we're historians. So we find moments in time hist- interesting all the time. But I, I think his this particular person re- embodies a lot of what you were saying. And I think that's a really great point in terms of like thinking about him as like a fulcrum or somebody experiencing these rapid changes and perhaps, or maybe not so perhaps, contributing directly to those changes. Um, he, he, was, he was very clearly a contributor to things like getting rid of the pocket bros and, and you know, con- contempt for the aristocracy. His actions were clearly, clearly huh. contributed to to that sort of social upheaval against the aristocracy. As someone who, you know, I, you know, I, I study U.S. Uh, mostly American, you know, political and military history, and I'm, you know, doing my own sort of writings of, of sort of um, novels and like, and I always have legitimate trouble with this idea of like an incompetent person buying their way into command without any sort of guardrails, in a way that like. In my my own mind, I, I it's hard for me to wrap my head around this idea of like, oh, I've agreed to fight and die at the command of dude who has basically a lottery check and bought his right. way to command me. But that was the way of things for so oh, long. Yeah. In at, at the very least, in in sort of Western and European warfare, I just think of all the men whose lives ended because of men like Cardigan. And all those dreams and all those hopes that died because a guy really wanted to play at cavalry officer mm. or mm. play at, you know, Roman general or play at, you know, whatever, because they just, they had the money and the name to do it. Yeah. Wow. And, and Cardigan just happened to be, or Lord Cardigan just happened to be so incompetent that he, and then immortalized that we sort of remember him. And then, and then there's countless nameless folks who may or may not have been competent or incompetent that, you know, followed the same path, but because they were not, perhaps not as, um, as immortalized or perhaps not as infamous as Cardigan, we don't talk about them in the same sort of degree, but should we talk, you know, take a quick second and talk about sources? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I, I first learned about um, the Earl of Cardigan from the, uh, from Assassin's Creed Syndicate and mostly learned about some of his insanity from the, the the research done by that by the, that game but when i was coming to this i was looking at um a couple of books there's a book by a couple of the, the people who served in crimea um john gow somerset uh, somerset john gow calthorpe and george cadigan who wrote a book called cadigan's crimea there's a book from 2004 called hell riders the truth about the charge of the light brigade there's a 1997 book called The Homicidal Earl, The Life of Lord Cardigan. There's a book from 1855 called, quote, Our Heroes of the Crimea Being Biographical Sketches of Our Military Officers from the General Commanding in Chief to the Subaltern. An 1855 work called Was Lord Cardigan a Hero at Balaclava um, that I kind of looked through and then checked with some, you know, some scholarly sources, some military historian websites saying like, who is really at fault for the charge of the Light Brigade? This is the the eight different biographical sketches or first-hand recounts and um, what they described and what they did to kind of figure out. So the truth is whether or not Cardigan was actively the reason for the charge of light brigade, whether or not it was a bad order or a bad decision, 
whether or not he fled or as he described, I made my way to the guns. Then I felt my job was over is, you know, open for interpretation because of the various, you know, it's the fog of war, so to speak, but just looked up a few of those just to give a kind of a sense of what people were saying at the time. And then what historians primarily of, of British military history were saying about him and, and what he did in at Balaclava, which is also a great word. Cardigan, Balaclava, great words we're saying on this podcast today. Well, thank you for joining me today and telling us the story of Lord Cardigan's uh, infamous screw-ups. Um, I think <laughs> it's safe to say that he was a... He, they were screw-ups. He made mistakes. I would say so. Yeah. Um, you know... There's mom. Everyone has moments in their lives, you know, voting for that reform bill towards the end of his life, I think would perhaps be a sort of like complicating factor to sort of like passing judgment upon him, which is fraught at the best of times. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it's safe to say that there was points in time. Yeah, there was points in time where he could have he had the opportunity to make a better decision and he chose not to. That, that is the understatement of the year. Granted, it's only yeah. been about 20 days, but that is the understatement of the year about our, our friend, the Lord Cardigan. There's been a lot of understatements for the last 20 days of 2021. <laughs> um, but thank you for yeah. joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. For more information, you can go to historiesgreatestscrewups.com or follow us on Twitter at hscrewups. History's Greatest Screwups pod is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Carrie Clement. Music is by Scott Holmes. Join us next time for tales about poor decisions, unfortunate mistakes, and bad luck in history. Until then, be good people and make good choices so you don't end up on this pod. Mm-hmm.